Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about the material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show proper, I've got some exciting news. We're turning Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. It will be running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at the Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, across four floors that will each tell a different, distinct, and I think genuinely fascinating material story. If you're looking for somewhere to exhibit at this year's festival, drop me a line at grant at materialmatters.design. That's grant at materialmatters.design. So, I'm delighted to tell you that my guest today is the artist and embroiderer Richard McVettis. Now, it's safe to say that Richard is fascinated by time. Each one of his often monochromatic pieces is meticulously made to explore the subtle differences that emerge through the ritualistic and repetitive nature of sewing. More recently, he's taken inspiration from his family's mining heritage to investigate a story of race and class through stitch. The artist says that he uses making to understand the world, to give material form to abstract ideas, making the intangible tangible. Richard has shown his work around the globe and has been shortlisted for a number of prizes, including the Jerwood Drawing Prize, the Loewe Craft Prize in 2018, and he currently has a solo show on at Farnham's Craft Study Centre. Richard, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's very nice to see you. It's very nice to see you. We're talking over Zoom, but one of the things we traditionally do on this podcast is to ask the guests to describe their studio. We're cheating a bit. You're doing this from home because your workplace is a bit it's a bit noisy, but for the listeners, let's pretend. What does your studio look like? You're at Cockpit Arts in London, right? Yes, I am currently at Cockpit Arts in Bloomsbury and I share with three other makers. And it's a really light, bright, beautiful space. Great for the work that I do so that I can see the things that I'm making. I sort of just have a desk, you know, I don't have much equipment. I'm quite minimal in terms of the things that I need to make my work. So I have a big desk piles of black cotton boxes of um, cream wool but yeah lots of lots of really gorgeous light and lots of um, sort of ephemera that I've collected over the year so quite a simple space yeah I quite like a quiet space when you say ephemera what kind of things are we talking about yeah things that I've collected over time postcards bits of patterns bits of threads things that I see in the street photographs yeah all those sorts of things that sort of inspire me and that sort of that always stays the same. And then I have a sort of mm. rotating board of different projects and ideas. Yeah. Currently it's empty. I mean, in terms of tools and materials then, it's black cotton, it's white wool and it's needles. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, that's quite simple in terms of its view of that. I mean, there are other things that I use to make the work, but essentially that's it. And that's the draw of why I love it because it's so simple in terms of its materials and its processes. You don't, you don't need a whole lot. You know, it's very nomadic. I can take it wherever I go or travel. And so I like, that's the one of the things that I love about specifically hand embroidery is that I don't need a lot of things. I can, you know, I can appear anywhere and do my work. <laughs> Shall we talk about the show at the Craft Study Centre in Farnham? How did it come about? And how did you go about deciding what pieces you'd display? 
So I met Leslie Miller, who is the director of the International Textile Research, which is at the Craft Studies Centre. And Leslie Miller is, she's run the textile course there for many, many years and very well established within textiles. I think when I was doing my foundation, she put on an amazing show called Textural Space at the Whitworth in 2001. So that was my first time that I'd seen any of her work. So she approached me along with Simon Alding, who's a director of the Craft Study Centre. Yeah, and they they didn't sort of commission new work, but gave me the space. I mean, how exciting to have all that room. And so the idea behind the exhibition was to have the opportunity to present a large body of work over a period of time. So I've never had that opportunity before. You know, a lot of the works are not made in isolation, but made in sequence. And so to see them all together in one space... It's really exciting, yeah. Mm. I mean, quite often a show like this signals a turning point in an artist's practice, closing a book maybe on one type of work and opening another. Is that the case for you? Maybe. (laughs) That's quite an (laughs) open-ended question. Maybe. I mean, I was um, asked to do the exhibition in 2019, so it feels like that book has been open for a while and because of COVID, everything was sort of held in place. And so I do feel slightly, I've been quite static in terms of my work and how it's developed. Yeah, it's a way of sort of finishing off perhaps a chapter in the body of work, maybe moving forward with something new. But then by putting on the show, there's a whole new way of thinking and seeing things and seeing things in physical spaces that that's quite exciting as well. So yeah, I think I saw this as a, as a way of sort of perhaps finishing this sort of body of work on and then, you know, moving on to sort of newer work. But like with any artist, it's so tricky to see so far into the future. You're pretty much guided by projects or opportunities that sort of land on your desk and deviate you or push you in a different direction. For instance, the coal project is definitely a, is something which has sort of steered me in a slightly different route I'm usual to do. Mm, Well, we'll explore that later. I mean, I had resisted asking about the pandemic, but you mentioned the word because I always end up talking about this on this show. I don't think we can avoid it. How was your pandemic? Presumably you were still able to work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm probably more fortunate than a lot of people in my studio who require lots of equipment. So I could work from home, but I, I wouldn't say it was completely easy. And, you know, we lost lots of opportunities to make money and survive as an artist. But I think I was able to really capitalize on this Zoom world that we live in and teach people. You know, a lot of what I do is also about engaging and reaching out to people and teaching them how to sew. And so I was able to do that. I pretty much worked non-stop but probably the busiest I've ever been just teaching people how to sew but you know to see the potential of stitching and drawing through process so I was able to connect with hundreds thousands of people across the world I mean it was a really incredible opportunity. So was this on YouTube or where did you do these sessions? It was all on Zoom um, and I worked with institutions I worked with Tate did a Tate Live workshop the Institute of Making I worked with sort of brands like Toast you know, to really sort of take that message out. And I had a captive audience. Everybody wanted to do stuff with their hands. And so I was able to sort of jump on that, but just for the joy of it, of course, but the necessity of earning a a wage, which was like the key driver, really. And does that teaching, I mean, I know you're doing it for practical financial reasons, but does that teaching and, and doing the workshops that you do when we're all out and about, does that feed into your practice? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. And I learn a lot from 
that because very much a lot of the narrative around my work is about making and connecting and the joy of slowing down. And so be able to, to talk with other people and share that idea, that sort of convivial aspect of textiles, which is so prevalent within that world of being able to sit around a table and sort of enjoy the slowness. I felt like it was even more important. You know, a lot of my work is about putting that internal world into a material form. And I think everyone had a lot of feelings to get out over the last two years. And so making and teaching absolutely does inform, you know, a big part of my practice for sure. Mm. One of the things that visitors will notice when they go to the craft study centre, other than the, the technique and the material, is this distinct lack of colour I'm looking at the screen now. There's a lot of white and grey and a bit of black and uh, and some lovely shelving. Do you distrust colour, I wonder? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> I absolutely love colour. And I would, you know, I spent the last four days in Stockholm taking pictures of colour. So I don't shy away from it. And the screen doesn't allude to the two big giant yellow cushions that are adjacent to create my you need to bring those into shot <laughs> yeah um but yeah i'm not scared of color and i'm uh you know i worked in the past as a designer so color was always part of that but for me the sort of simplicity of the black and the white and also those beautiful tones that you get in between the black and the white was really a sort of escapism from a kind of oversaturated filled world so sort of a quiet space and i i really appreciate that so those monochrome sort of the that aesthetic which is so key to my style is really just an escape from the noise really so i mean i'm not scared of color at all and i love it but it's just easy for me to sort of sink back into that very quiet space and that and that's what it really it's really about more about the process than than essentially the color but yeah there's something really nice about that black and white and the negative and the positive there are a number of pieces of ink drawings on graph paper in the show and they're pieces in their own right but is drawing part of your process as well yeah i mean i think i draw essentially you know my whole work for my whole practice is essentially drawing and drawing is fundamental to everything that i'm doing it's mark making and i've never wanted to distinguish them as different aspects i mean i see embroidery as a medium for drawing and that was always my route into making with stitch that i was able to see that association, that connection, yeah, transform that idea of the flatness of the paper onto the fabric. So that's what I'm always trying to achieve is that flatness. But with embroidery specifically, there's something about the tactile nature of it that you can hold it in your hands, you can pick it up, that you can see the reverse. So drawing is essentially what I do. And so I would say everything that I've done, the the objects, the, the sculptures, the installations are about that mark making that I do with that simple stitch. thing is, by the time you get to your level, if you're a visitor to your show, the one thing you can't do is pick these things up, right? Exactly. It's for me. It's for me only. So, you know, it's for me only, but that's, you know, and that's why I encourage people to like make with me to, to learn how to sew. They can sort of experience the joy that I get when I'm making. And I think that's something that I really like to share is for people to understand the sort of the majesty of the hand and that you can do like all these wonderful things with quite a mundane process. It's, it's so simple in terms of its application, but it's just about patience and time. And many people don't have that, that idea of patience and about being with something longer than two seconds on the screen before you flick away and go into something else. So there's something really beautiful about embroidery specifically or any sort of physical process, hand process, which teaches you to slow down and take notice and it teaches you patience. I think everyone's always in a bit of a rush now. And that's a bit of a digital sort of cliche now, isn't it? That everyone's sort of out of time and not able to slow down. But this really does force you to do that. I think the majesty of the hand is a lovely turn of phrase, by the way. I'm going to have to nick that. I'm oh, good. You can have that. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> I mean, I think as in terms of your process as well, I was reading that a camera 
is very important. You're constantly taking images and I'm wondering how that feeds into your work. Yeah, I mean, part of that taking images is also just about constantly looking and seeing. And sometimes those images don't turn into a piece of work, but they are a piece of work by themselves. So for me, it's about noticing those everyday instances, the sort of the mundaneness of everyday life, like the beauty of light and shadow and and specifically shadows or the negatives created by shadow, because again, they allude to time and, and change and things are happening. And they're quite ephemeral moments that I'm trying to capture in a sort of very permanent way. You know, that shadow will never be like that again, because it's, it's a once in a moment time although you know it repeats every day but that tree will grow you know so it's that idea of time more than anything and I think photography really captures that idea but yeah they're they're a starting point and they're a route in I think to elevate the everyday I think as well images are really for me to again slow down and and take notice Mm. where do you find your patterns Richard there's a lovely story about a piece called my gray pencil case which I'd quite like to talk about about the kind of finding things in the everyday. Yeah, I mean, I made my great pencil case when I was at the Royal College of Art. So I had a series of pencil cases and that was really a quite an abstract portrait of essentially my time when I was at the Royal College. So I opened the pencil case and there recorded on the inside of the pencil case were all the pens and pencils that were marking as I was jostling around this new city. So it's like one of the quickest pieces of work I've ever made, which is really unique for me because everything takes so long, but also one of the slowest pieces of work because it was a pencil case I had for many years. So it became this sort of very visual and very abstract record of a specific moment in time. So uh, yeah, my grey pencil case, and it's got like um, a portrait of my sort of silhouette. So it became a very abstract record of time. Yeah, yeah. Is it important that people can recognise that? Presumably they can't recognise that instantly. They'd need to read and discover that. And is, is that part of what intrigues you about your work, why you make your work the way that it is? Yeah, I think there are many routes into my work. And I think maybe the first instance is probably visual and aesthetic. So that's always the first thing in. And I make work that I like to look at. But for those who are sort of more interested and want to slow down and look a little bit further into the work, there are other narratives that I'm trying to build into that idea. And so, yeah, but so the first route is always the visual and the aesthetic. I I like making things that I like to look at and look at, but also there are multiple levels to everything. And that's what's really exciting about a piece of art is that if you want to, you can explore more. That's the sort of, you sort of capture them with what it looks like. And then there's another sort of reveal or aha moment when when they lean into like maybe read the title or read the statement but it's not always important for everybody to know everything about a piece of work you know I make work for myself you know as a way of sort of you know um, figuring out the world just want to hang on to to I want to hang on to time (laughs) (laughs) begin to sound like Cher or something (laughs) Um, but just to concentrate on time because I'm intrigued as to why it fascinated you. There's a lovely moment in the essay in the show's brochure that Annie Warburton wrote, who's the CEO of Cockpit, where she describes time as your primary material. Would you agree with that? And where did this interest in time start? Yeah, I mean, it was an immediate thing. And I think in hindsight, you can look at my, you know, a series of my works and they relate to this idea of recording time. I mean, artwork is a way of recording time, you know, portraits, pictures, paintings, they all record specific moments, events in time. My work reveals specific moments like five o'clock shadow, which refers to this idea of bodily time, like the time within a man, you know, that you know things are happening, but also that 
the shadow was literally five o'clock on the floor and I, I sort of wanted to keep that moment. I'm really interested in science and physics and how things work. And so one of the first questions that anyone might ask within my process is, it's like my least favourite question, I would say, is how long does that take to make? It's a classic question that every maker slash artist gets asked, right? Yeah, all the time. And so a lot, you know, when I made a project called Units of Time, it was about, you know, I didn't know how long things took. I knew it took a long time. So it became this idea of visualising what time was. And I've always been interested in the nature of time, like physics or how things work or quantum mechanics. And so it started me down a sort of a wormhole of interest. You know, I like the mundane aspects of sewing and that I can explore quite complex things like science. So I'm really inspired by Carla Rovelli or Stephen Hawking and the way they visualise or describe time. And so I think stitches are as a perfect metaphor because the first thing you see with embroidery is this idea of time. You can see it literally embedded in the fabric. That's a, a really interesting thing and in that you know, this each stitch is almost like a comma or a full stop, this sort of mantra. It becomes this record of lived time. And I really love that idea that Annie talks about, you know, because that's that book that I read, Order of Time, and this idea of quanta and this idea of these frenzied marks swarming around on the surface. And that was, you know, I was able to, you know, stitch for me is that visual link, that metaphor, how it connects to this idea of time. So yeah, it's a completely fascinating subject. Yeah. I mean, I distinctly remember having a moment with your work at the Crafts Council's Fair Collect in 2017. I mean, previously I think I'd seen images of it and I don't think I'd really appreciated what you were doing, but then you did this piece called Variations of a Stitch Cubed, which was all about the number 60 and the way we measure time. Your first cube had one hour of stitching. The final cube had 60 hours of stitching. Obviously there were 60 cubes. And as you say, it gets around that question of how long did it take you to make this? Was that the moment where, you, where this is going to be the absolute kind of epic moment of my thinking around time? Yeah, I think it was absolutely that. And I think I wanted to make a large scale piece of work, but with this same idea of scale. And also that time is subjective. I think that was the key there that, you know, no time is universal, although they try and make it universal, but time is subjective and that it sort of emanates from each of us. So that piece of work was really quite a subjective take on time because one hour of sewing for me would be very different to one hour of you sewing. So you get this very abstract representation of time. And so this sort of fake reality, you know, what is time and this sort of material that we, because it is a sort of a material that everybody gets, but doesn't have a, I mean, you can pay for more time and you can pay people to do things for you. So you get more time, but you know, what is time? What does it look like as a physical thing, both as a material that you can touch and hold and, and move around? So yeah, that became a sort of an altarpiece to this idea of time. So I was really interested in Babylonians, Sumerians, and reading this beautiful book like The Human Cosmos and how this number 60 developed by the Sumerian sexagonal system has still so rooted in our modern life, you know, 60 seconds, 60 minutes. So it was sort of an altarpiece to this idea of time. And both that grid format gives this idea of how we try and control time. For me, it's about control. Like embroidery is that idea of trying to slow down a very specific moment to stop things rushing away from me and to be present. So that project became lots of different things. Do you need to be in control, Richard? Is control important for you? I think so. Yeah. So I sort of channel it in my work because I think otherwise I would be a nightmare to be around. Although I would say, you know, I'm quite laid back in other things, but when it comes to sort of space and being at home, then I think there is this idea of being slightly overwhelmed and the process of making is a sort of quite a cathartic process it allows me to yeah it's sort of a meditation you know I don't like saying the word wellness but you know it is a sort of therapy absolutely and then I can use it to explore really 
interesting things that I'm interested in. I like coming back to this simple tool that I can toggle from, you know, maps of lights to stories of my family to ideas of time or things that I just like looking at. So it's a great sort of armature to be able to explore these different interesting things. Mm, I mean, you've described yourself as an introvert and a perfectionist. And I'm just wondering if embroidery, what well, sounds as if it is, embroidery is a good thing for an introverted perfectionist. Maybe, I would say. <laughs> maybe I'm not a perfectionist anymore. Again, we were having a discussion this weekend about being slightly highly sensitive rather than introvert. So I'm quite as sensitive to everything around me. But there's this perception that all my work is very perfect. And the illusion is that it is, but all the stitches are completely different. So I never unpick or never redo things. But the simplicity and the tininess of it all, I'd make it so small that people just can't see it, essentially. I think the embroidery police would probably have a few words with me because the stitches are on or even. But, you know, for me, it's not about being that perfect. I would definitely say it was a control aspect for sure. And I've been doing it for such a long time now that I am good at it. It's sort of unconscious, the stuff that I'm making. And quite often I'm not looking. So, yeah. Because you've also described yourself as meticulous and obsessive doesn't sound like you're that meticulous in that case or you're becoming more relaxed i'm not sure i think as i get older <laughs> probably less relaxed and i think who can be relaxed right now in the world that we live in so you know again it's that way of sort of channeling and that little bit of control all my work is meticulous and tiny i love tiny things and i like making small things i mean i think small things can reveal things about the big world you know so looking down and looking close at patterns or ideas of scale things like how the world works. So when I talk about physics or science or architecture, all those sort of things I'm exploring within my work. Why the interesting cubes? Mm, yeah, I think I've always been really interested in maybe the work of Saul Lewitt, but I think it probably stems back to just being a kid and playing with like Lego. It's very superficial. I mean, it's not, that's not superficial. If I think about the happiest points in my life, I think it's definitely been about playing with materials and this idea of building. But I love the simplicity of a cube. It sort of rationalises things and it is a, it's a nice container. So this sort of fundamental shape, which helps you organise and control. I think, again, this idea of control, I think, to apply it onto a system like a grid or a map, I think absolutely sort of reveals a lot about me. Mm. Can we go right back and talk about, really, why textiles and embroidery in the first instance, Richard? You know, I mean, if there are gender issues around sewing. It's ridiculous, but there are. It wasn't that long ago that the UK Crafts Council did an exhibition called Boys Who Sew. I think it was 2004, maybe. Um, so what attracted you to the material in the first instance? And do you think perceptions of the material and, and of the technique have changed in recent years? Yeah, I mean, my route into textiles specifically. So, I, I mean, I didn't have any sort of history with textiles. So I never really thought about it as an area that I would be interested in. But by doing a foundation course and having my interview with a foundation tutor, and the first thing him saying to me, seeing my work was that, oh, you're a textile student. So I quizzically looked at him and I always thought that I would be interested in sort of graphics and sculpture. So I'd never really thought about that. And then by the end of that foundation year, being within textiles, and then of course my tutor suggesting that I go and have a look at an embroidery course at Manchester was completely crazy. I was thought that's so strange within a year to sort of change my mind. Did you ever quiz your tutor as to what they saw in you that led them to think that textiles was the route for you? Really about surface. And I think about being that sort of meticulous nature, which is very in tune with people who like textiles, up close things, very detail oriented work. And I think going to Manchester was, there were many reasons for wanting to do that course. And I would probably lie because I would say hand embroidery was not part of my foundation and I've never done it before. So why would I want to do embroidery at Manchester? 
Well, I was really blown away by what they were doing with it and the sort of definitions of it, how they were challenging what embroidery was. And so it was really a chance encounter, seeing the degree show and thinking, oh, actually, this is quite interesting. I saw a guy on the course. I remember his name and his work. And I thought, oh, and by seeing him, I was able to sort of see myself there. I think there was only like one guy on that course then. And so I was able to see that sort of connection and I loved his work. He was doing these beautiful drawings and I thought, okay, I could just be here and draw. I mean, I had no idea and I was just wanting guidance, you know, I'm very young and, and also I wanted to live in Manchester, you know, to go and live in a city. So there was lots of other reasons for choosing that course, I, I think. But you didn't mind being part of a minority on your own course. That didn't bother you. No, it didn't. But I was very aware. I'm absolutely aware of textiles and specifically embroidery and the sort of cultural references and the baggage that comes along with it and how gendered it is with that. You know, when I did embroidery, I might have been slightly embarrassed about saying that I did it. And I found that everyone started to question my identity, my sexual identity, that Mm. questions that I'd never had to ask before or answer before. People then started questioning that. So the ideas of what it was to be masculine or you know because as soon as you mention embroidery there are associations with femininity about being gay although i am i wasn't then and so people were seeing things that i weren't seeing so it was a very confusing time for me but i felt safe and i think maybe that was one of the main reasons i did it is that i felt safe being with all these women in this space you know i grew up in the 90s on an estate in rugeley in staffordshire and it was just like it was pretty like height of lad culture so i was sort of maybe trying to escape all of that it's easy to sort of look back in hindsight and try and psychoanalyze all of that but i think let's try and do that (laughs) (laughs) because i'm quite keen to talk about your background you were born in south africa but returned to the uk when you were 10 your dad and your grandfather, and I think many of your mother's family were were minors. What was the McVettis household like? Were you encouraged to make? Was art part of what you did on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I was born in Whitbank in South Africa, but we grew up in the middle of nowhere. So my dad was a coal miner there. We lived on a village or coal mining sort of village, you know, right next to it. And so it was a very nice life, but very sort of hands-off, I would say. We were just encouraged just to get out of the house in the morning and don't come back till tea time. So it was very that sort of life. I mean, art was really not part of my life at home. I would say that my dad, when we moved back here, he was very, you know, the first thing we did was go to the library and get a library card. So he was a really avid reader. But at home, it was very hands off, sort of play with your toys, you know, be quiet, that sort of thing. But that's sort of a normal You know, many families did that. And so when I look at other people's families now who do all these extensive activities and events, I was like, my life wasn't like that at all. But I had a great time in South Africa because I was with my friends when we were outside building and, you know, just living a very outside life in the felt at the back. So it was absolutely fine. But there was none of that sort of active encouragement of art or education, I would say. And presumably you're in apartheid South Africa. I mean, were you aware of apartheid at that age? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was totally. I lived on this mine and then next to it was a township. And I was very aware that we had a maid and there was a gardener that came with the house, you know. And it's only in retrospect, you know, in sort of hindsight that I can look back and question and wonder what was going on at that point. And we left in 93 when, you know, Mandela became the president and there was huge things changing. I remember at school, I mean, I went to a white school, so there was no, no black people at school. And I remember the first 
black person that started the school. Like it was quite, you know, I was nine and then there was this new boy in the class and he was the only black person in that school. So I was there at this sort of transition phase. I remember having the army outside the school because they were worried about trouble. So it wasn't until I was like nine or 10 that I started to really notice. But of course, you know, I had no context. I didn't know what was going on, but I do always wonder what my mom and dad thought about it, you know. And I've done subsequent research into that and I've tried to find out why and ask questions. And so it sheds a whole new light on my life there. You know, I was enjoying this very privileged white life with a lovely house and we had a swimming pool, not at the house, but down the road. It's very strange to think all of that was at the expense of other people who lived in that country. Mm, mm. There's a book that you mentioned quite a lot in the various interviews I've read of yours, Rendering with Pen and Ink by Robert W. Gill, that seemed pivotal for you. What age were you when you discovered it and what effect did it have on you? My art education really only started when I came back to the UK because the education in South Africa was very academic and sort of nothing creative was encouraged, really. It was sort of sport, maths and science. And so I discovered that book when I came back to the UK. I've always been drawing. And so I was always drawing in South Africa. My mom would buy me comic books and I would copy the comic books and draw. So I would just draw, draw, draw all the time. So drawing was not a new thing. It was something I gravitated towards straight away. But when I started doing design technology, I found that book very early on when I was 11 or 12. And so that became a beautiful book. You know, I really wanted to be an architect because I learned how to spell the word architect so that I could become it, but it never never (laughs) happened so that I could be that architect. And that book is really... So what age were you when you wanted to be an architect? I think I was like nine, nine. I was in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Looking in the dictionary at my friend's house and we all had to choose like a career, you know, what we would want to aim towards. But yeah, drawing has always been the most fundamental thing. And that book, yeah, quite important in terms of seeing the world and then giving it tone, giving it line, being able to sort of represent the world around me in this drawing. Mm. I guess by the time you were the, well, you're old enough or the right age, the notion of following your father down the pit didn't really exist. Did you enjoy schools? Were there other paths you could have followed? Yeah, I feel very lucky that one generation later that I didn't... Mm need to go to a coal mine. So it's, I mean, that's, but there was obviously no coal mines left. So there wasn't really an option at all. That sort of post-industrial England and Scotland had disappeared. So there, there was none of that there. I mean, I didn't love completely school, but, you know, school got better as I did A-levels and foundation and art. I found my sort of tribe of people. So it definitely became easier, but I could have done science or could have done maths or something like that. But it was really art as my way in. And my dad died when I was 16. Mm. So I never had to really deal with that sort of like coming out, you know, telling him I do embroidery, telling him that I'm gay. And art was really my way of sort of coping with all of that. Art became my way of dealing with everything. So I just emerged myself completely in my A-levels into my studio and just stayed there and made work for those two years. It was really sort of saved me at that point, I think. When you did come out, was your mum alive at the time and and I wonder how she dealt with it because it must have been quite tough mining people right yeah I mean um I was definitely scared about you know revealing that part of me and yeah I don't think my mom dealt with it very well um but she did it was fine after a few months and I absolutely loved her and she embraced everything about me after that Mm. but it was very difficult to do that to come from you know quite a restrictive You know, I didn't know any gay people. No one was gay. There were many gay people, of course, but there was no one there. So, you know, embroidery, art, all of that helped me discover Mm. myself. Absolutely. And I think it was part of that process for sure. So, yeah, no, I I wouldn't say it was easy at all, but it was something we got through together. Yeah, yeah. 
quite intriguing. The family was originally from Lithuania. So McVettis isn't actually the family name. It was it was given to who your your father by the local school teacher, I believe. Yeah, so I think it was given to my father, but my dad's dad, so my granddad's. A grandfather. Yeah. Okay. So part of that assimilation, that idea of hiding who you were and where you were from. So they arrived at the beginning of the century from Lithuania and Germany. They were escaping. This feels very topical right now. They were escaping the Russian um, Empire. The Cossacks were forcing everyone to fight for them or be killed. So they they fled Lithuania and then went to Germany and subsequently were on their way to Canada as farmers and they um, got off at Lee Stocks and, you know, a series of unfortunate things meant they had to stay there. And so that's how that sort of idea started, how our family became here. And then the name was changed just by the school teacher. And people wanted to do it. They wanted to be British. So there's lots of ideas about what it is to be British or this idea that I'm a sort of patchwork of different sort of cultures from Europe. Hmm, interesting. I mean, because you yourself came back at the age of 10 from South Africa and initially settled back into the family home in Scotland Subsequently, you moved in with your mother's family in Rugeley, and your dad worked on the production lines of Armitage Shanks. Do you remember that move? It must have been quite an adjustment. Yeah, I mean, I remember getting the flight, being on a very long flight in my shell suit, I remember. <laughs> uh, says everything about the time there. <laughs> yeah, we arrived into Scotland. Yeah, it was an absolute culture shock. Yeah, I came back to darkness and snow in Scotland, and to this very inside life, into tiny houses. I think it was a huge adjustment for me. But I think more so for my probably my mom and dad to come back and to be so reliant on the family again. You know, we lived in the loft for a few months, sort of a conversion. And then my dad couldn't get any jobs because, you know, the sort of the legacy still of post-industrial Britain meant that he had no skills that nobody wanted. So that forced us to move back to my mom's hometown. And again, he really struggled to find any sort of jobs. He was 56 then, so really hard to find a job at that age. But he eventually found a job at Armitage Shanks, which is right next to Rugeley, where he worked on the production line, yeah. Mm. Coal and your family's relationship with it is the focus of your piece, Coal Seams, that's mm. in the Farnham show. I mean, can we discuss what that looks like and how it works? Yeah, um, so I made a piece called Coal Seams, and this idea of coal and the landscapes and this idea of this material being quite a crucial material within many people's lives within Britain. It was quite a, a poignant material which helped shape the country, which grew mm. the country into this powerful, dominant colonial power. And really the coal was a fuel of it. So that project really wanted to look at how coal shaped our lives. So the pieces are really a play on the word coal seams and the seams of clothes. So the seams of clothes shape garments, but also coal has shaped our lives. So I was really interested in this idea of geological time, this material from over 300 million years ago, and how it has played an important role and how it still plays an important role in shaping the human story. But specifically my link and my family's link to the landscape and how my father migrated to wherever the coal was. Mm. So he was really rooted to landscape, nomadic almost, following the material to find a job to, you know, support his family. And so that meant that he would, you know, he started in Scotland as this apprentice craftsman at the age of 16, which I can't even imagine thinking about in 19, I think 1957. And I've got his old sort of sheets and forms. And it's like this apprentice craftsman in mining, this idea of craft of a material. And so then he worked across Scotland and then he worked down into South Staffordshire. And then because again of the 80s and this sort of deindustrialization, the sort of the politics and economics of the 80s meant there was no job 
job. And then they were actively recruited by these very sort of racist policies of South Africa to bring white workers there. There was this idea yeah, of that this material really shaped my life. So shaped my father's life and the men of those lives, but also had this huge impact on my life. So the, the piece is a literal map of all these underground seams of coal, mm. and they're really beautiful. And they attracted me purely because of this idea of the visual, but this idea of time, this sort of geological time. And then these cosmic forces, which sort of created it, you know, the, the world splitting, the heat, the movement, time, all those aspects that are really, again, multiple levels of both this idea of time, but also the economics and politics of that whole time. 1982 was the, the highest number of British people that emigrated to South Africa, which is when my family went because of right. this deliberate idea of attracting white skilled laborers to maintain apartheid so that i mean i found all of that out during this process of 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 making that piece of work yeah do you think your father would have appreciated your work i think so yeah Mm. he was a real critic i think i would say so if i did a really nice drawing he would always say something like it would be better if he did this so he was always trying to push me to do it slightly better but i think maybe that would be any sort of parent to not shower me completely with lots of praise (laughs) but there was always a way to sort of push it yeah I don't know he's a very quiet guy and you know wasn't around that long into my adult life to in order for us Mm. to create that bond and so that piece of work whole seems was really a way of sort of connecting with my past and also looking at both my mom and dad and where they'd been and you know what shaped their lives and influences you know that helped make those decisions that they had to make in order to you know just sustain themselves yeah. I was reading your father died of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is linked to working in mines. So effectively, the material played a role in his death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was like many miners. It was very early on. He was, you know, coal miner at 57. The material gave life, of course, but also, um, you know, played an important role in sort of taking life as well. So he died very young because of that, quite literally worked to death, like many coal miners, um, you know, around at that time. So we left your story, Richard, sorry, we digress, but a fascinating and beautiful digression. Thank you. We left your story, you were through Foundation, you're at Manchester and getting an interest in textiles, but the embroidery itself when did the interest in embroidery happen? And when did the work as we know it now, when did that begin to take shape? I think towards the end of the first year and really understanding the potential of drawing as mark making. So it was actually a trip to the V&A and my sort of link there was we had to choose a specific subject to, to write an essay on. We'd been to on a university trip to the V&A and I discovered all this beautiful work from the 16th century and it was a specific technique called black work embroidery so called spanish black work before you know he got king henry got rid of catherine and then it became black work and it, it became synonymous with sort of 16th century and this specific technique called seeding and speckling was on this beautiful piece which is still in the vna in the british gallery called the shepherd's bus and it's a very illustrative piece but the seeding stitch was the root in and i saw it and then i was able to make that connection with the drawing the rendering And so, you know, it was a sort of, again, that aha moment. So actually by studying embroidery, I mean, I learned so much about process and textile techniques, but it was that specific technique. And so by the end of the first year, it started that that sort of obsession, but the specific obsession with the repeating dots and that pattern was by the end of the third year. Yeah, I was making sort of sculptures, objects, really driven by process this idea of repetition and just became completely obsessed and fascinated with it. So it was quite early on and I feel I've taken a few detours on the way, but I've always come back to this sort of obsessive mark making and it's definitely got tinier as I've got older. So I'm worried. 
(laughs) (laughs) And was it always an ambition? I think you went in 2006 to go to the Royal College of Art. Did you always want to go there? Yeah, I think um, as I became more aware of art in primary school, I would notice like M-A-R-C-A next to all these artists' name, and I was intrigued. Um, but I don't think it was always completely there, and I didn't think it was going to be possible just because of money and, you know, uh, how could I afford to go there? But I just did it, and I went. So, it's, you know, I feel very lucky and grateful that I was able to attend at that time in 2006. You know, it's really exciting, but also challenging all at the same time. How did it affect your practice? I mean, if you look at my website, you can see my work is very different to the work that I make now. The sort of, mm. um, and I like the idea. They really sort of challenged me, both in terms of scale, in terms of mark making. But I was really able to get to the sort of root of what I really loved about making art. And that was, you know, essentially drawing. And it's taken me probably 10 years to realise that. You know, it's it's everything again is always better sort of looking back. I wouldn't say the Royal College was completely necessary that easy for me. I found to go from Manchester and then go to the Royal College and, you know, um, everyone was so talented and to be quite intimidated by that place. So it took me a while to find my feet. And then I was always very aware of just money, essentially. You know, I do. It's just a very expensive place to be, London. So that was always a kind of barrier. I felt like I didn't always feel like I was the best student because I don't think I was necessarily always there in terms of my head. I was always trying to just work. You know, I had a job. Yeah. What did you do? I worked in the shop as a merchandiser. Right. You know, Habitat on on High Street, Ken. So I would go there at seven and then I would come to college at nine or 10 o'clock. So I'd do my shift and then do that. And then I'd work on Saturday. So I was just constantly trying to balance life and money and all of that stuff at the same time. So it was hard. You know, I came from a family that wasn't going to give me, you know, I couldn't ask them for money or support. This is what I wanted to do. So I had to figure out and do it myself. And that retail design has gone through your career. I mean, you until what 2018, I think you were creating spaces for people like Adidas and Reebok. I'm interested in the similarities between the art side of what you do and then this other career that you had in design. I had to just make a decision when I left the Royal College to earn some money. And so I, you know, potentially I would have done it a different way if I'd had options or um, I was able to be an artist full time. But I decided that, I actually didn't decide anything. It was just a, <laughs> a situation which forced me to work. And it took me a while to sort of figure myself out. So I worked in the shop and then I became a sort of a manager. And then, you know, after seven years, maybe four years of working at Habitat, being sort of a lead within the the London area, then I found a job with a design agency, a visual merchandising design agency. Yeah, I was really interested in space, you know, two-dimensional, three-dimensional space. I loved organising and creating and drawing. So space was really important part of that. And so it was exciting to do that job and, you know, to enjoy it. But I was always making when I got home from work or, you know, that idea there. So I, I had an exciting job, but I had to make a decision in that what was going to be my long term career goals. And I'd reached a point where it was either like a bigger job. And so then the art would go. You realise as you get older, you can't do it all. And so something had to give. And so, you know, 2018, I decided that wasn't part of it. And, you know, my long-term goal was really to be an artist and make work, yeah. So I've seen your work described in a number of places, actually, as performance art. Um, Is that something you agree with? Do you see it as performance art? Not completely all the time. I mean, sometimes there is a sort of performatory aspect to it, just because I set a series of rules and, you know, a lot of the ideas and decision-making is made beforehand. So there's mm. something perfunctory about that. 
and specifically the piece of work, the variations piece, uh, variations of a stitch cube, that was very performatory and all decisions were made beforehand. And this idea of me just sat there and doing it becomes a sort of performance, but I do it sort of in a very private space. I'm just... I was going to say, you don't work in public. No, no. And I have done it. I've done it once where I sat in the gallery and I stitched and I hated it. I hated every single moment of it. Why? Because I don't like that sort of attention, that idea of drawing attention to myself. And again, this idea of a man sewing on a cube, it just becomes a little bit of a spectacle. And, you know, for me, it's not always about that. I mean, I'm very self-conscious, I would say. So I don't really like to draw attention to myself. And then I'm an artist and, you know, have to put myself out there. So it's like, I find that quite difficult to deal with. But there is a, yeah, there is a sort of a performance aspect to it. I think this idea of time, because time is a sort of a performance piece. And I work in durational sections. So almost like a stage set. So there are scenes and things I do. So yeah, there's a little bit of that, but it's completely private. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Our time is kind of up unfortunately, and annoyingly, because I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It's the final question, Richard. You have this show, Craft Study Centre in Farnham, Shaped by Time, which goes until the 30th of July. Then after that, what can we expect from you? Oh, that's a, this is always a difficult question. And I thought I'd prepared it in my head because I knew it was going to be asked. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sort of quite excited just to, again, let that exhibition live a little bit and have mm. a little bit of quiet time. But I'm already in the studio making new work more sort of sculptural work and there are talks of potentially a book in the future but yeah I'm reluctant to give too much away but I'm excited just to have a little bit of quiet time at the moment I sort of got an anticlimactic come down from the exhibition you know having to wait so long for it and now I'm sort of trying to fill all my time post exhibition with some just relaxation I think very good well Richard thank you so much for your time really appreciated that that was great thank you very much Grant And to discover more about Richard, go to richardmcvettis.co.uk. His show, Shaped by Time, runs at the Craft Study Centre in Farnham until the 30th of July. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Although I should mention there's a brand new Material Matters website on its way very, very soon, so look out for that. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.